chapter 6, and you don't have to turn to it, Jesus feeds the multitude. 5,000 men get fed, plus women and children, and basically they were fed with one young boy's lunch. A few pieces of fish and some bread. And that miracle was so remarkable that the people who witnessed it began strategizing how they could make Jesus their king. Because you see, in that culture, the king was the head warrior. He was, he was your guy that would lead your army and vanquish your enemies. And they were thinking, can you imagine if he could do this, what he could do to the Romans? And so even in John 6, it says they were even contemplating making him be king by force. Could you imagine forcing Jesus to do anything? Well, Jesus, after that miracle, speaking to this, the crowds that were getting larger and larger and larger began speaking about why he actually came. And he made a statement that they totally misunderstood. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And they thought he was talking about cannibalism. And they were so turned off by what he said that they began leaving. And by the end of John 6, the only people left were his original followers. And when Jesus said to them, are you going to leave too? They said, we have no other place to go. And so, obviously, it wasn't the miracles of what th that Jesus did uh, that attracted people to him. I want to talk about Jesus' time on earth. And we're going to look at the greatest miracle that he did in his earthly ministry. Uh, that'll be in John chapter 11. But before we do, what I'd like to do is take a look at the only mention of the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah in the Bible. And so I want to see, last night they did pretty good in this. I want to see what, whether you think it's Old Testament or New Testament. This is the Jewish feast of Hanukkah, and the only mention of it in the Bible, is it in the Old Testament or in the New Testament? How many of you say old? Let's see. How many of you say new? Okay, so turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. It's in the New Testament because it actually takes place after the Old Testament was finished. So it was what's known as the intertestamental period. But we're going to be looking at John chapter 10, beginning at verse 22. And we read this, John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication, that's the Hebrew word for Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. And so, as we begin, I want to make mention of, of one thing first, and that's the use of the term the Jews in the Gospel of John. Throughout the Gospel of John, you'll hear that term used, the Jews. And it almost seems like a derogatory term. The first time I read the Gospel of John as a Jewish man, it almost made me bristle a little bit because I didn't understand. And then as I was able to study it uh, in the original languages, it's actually Judeans. And that word is referring to the, to the Jewish religious leaders who were in opposition of Jesus. So when you see the word Jews there, it's really talking about particular Jewish people who were in opposition to Jesus, the Jewish religious leaders. Because quite frankly, everybody in this story is Jewish, including John. 
And so what we have here is the Jewish religious leaders are challenging Jesus to basically announce that he's the Messiah. So what they're saying is, why don't you just stand up and say, listen, everybody, I'm the Messiah. Everybody understand that? I'm the Messiah. And so, I mean, if I said that, you would look at me like I was pretty crazy. And that's what they were hoping, that anybody declaring themselves to be the Messiah would be marginalized, dismissed, as, as a kook. I have a, a dear friend, had a dear friend who's now with the Lord, whose wife was a psychiatric nurse. And she would lead uh, group sessions uh, with people who had some very serious mental problems. And in one of these particular sessions, this one guy who had multiple personality disorder was sitting there, and he had a jacket on. He buttoned the jacket, and he had his hand inside the jacket, and he developed a French accent, even though he wasn't French. And he began speaking, and finally, my friend's wife said to him, and, and who are you? And he said, I am Napoleon. And she said, really? And he began reciting things about Napoleon and, and talking about uh, all, the, all the different conquests that he had. And, and finally, knowing that this man wasn't French, she, she said to him, and who told you that you were Napoleon? And the man said to him, why, God did. God told me. And suddenly a voice in the back of the room yelled out, I did not. <laughs> and so that's kind of what the Jewish religious leaders were hoping would happen. That Jesus would just announce, I'm the Messiah. People would look at him like he was a looney tune and just dismiss him as being crazy. But... Uh, <laughs> that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he responds to the challenge by pointing to his works. Look at what he says in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. In other words, they said to him, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly, and he said, I already did. And how did he do that? By the works, the miracles that he was doing. Because you see, the ancient rabbis taught that there were miracles that only the Messiah could do. What they called messianic miracles. And it was based on a verse in the book of Isaiah. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 35, you'll see where it was based on. It was elaborated and expanded, but this is the verse that they based the teaching on. This is Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Listen to this. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The ancient rabbis expanded these verses and said that there were messianic miracles, miracles that only the Messiah could do. 
And the first messianic miracle was found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. If you turn back to it, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, and the first messianic miracle was the healing of a Jewish leper. Why a Jewish leper? Because in the Old Testament, there was only one leper that was actually healed of leprosy, and that was a man named Naaman who was a Syrian. He wasn't a Jew. And so the rabbis said, well, when a Jewish leper is healed, uh, then we'll know it's the Messiah. So this is Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. It says, while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. Now, if, if you've ever seen pictures of lepers, uh, number one, leprosy is very, very contagious. It is very, very easy to catch. And leprosy in its final stages is horrific. You can barely make out the person's face. They're, they're covered with all of these horrific sores. And what happens in the end stages of leprosy, the extremities get so dead, the nerves are so gone, that they actually fall off. So fingers, toes, ears, nose, things like that, anything of an extremity, uh, because the nerves are all dead. And so this man is in his final stages of leprosy. And according to, to Jewish law, when a leper was in a community, they were supposed to cry out, unclean, unclean, because nobody wanted to get anywhere near them because they were so contagious. Okay, now Jesus comes along. It says, when the leper saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So he's acknowledging that Jesus was at this point, we don't know if he believed he was the Messiah, but he was acknowledging that Jesus had the power to heal. If you are willing, make me clean. And Jesus says to him, says he stretched out his hand and touched him. And, and that's, <coughs> that's very, very important in this story because, again, the leper, nobody wants to touch a leper because they are so contagious. And there's Jesus putting his hand on the leper. He says, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And this is found in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 that if a leper was cleansed, they were supposed to go to the priest uh, because, again, it was not something that very often happened. And so what Jesus is telling him to do is to let them know what happened because this is a messianic miracle. It's Jesus' way of declaring his messiahship. That's what Jesus did with his miracles. They weren't just random things that he did, but they all had a purpose, and it was his declaration of who he was. And so, Jesus sends the man to the priest uh, to talk about the fact that he was cleansed. So we come to the second messianic miracle. That's found in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. And that second messianic miracle 
was the deliverance, the exorcism of a mute demon. Why a mute demon? Because, you see, there was Jewish exorcisms that took place. And the way that a Jewish exorcist would work is by communicating with the demon and finding out the demon's name. Because, you see, in that culture, the name signified something about uh, the person, in this case, the demon. And so uh, Jesus actually used that form of exorcism when he exorcised the man who was inhabited by the demon known as Legion, because there were many. My name is Legion, and then at that point, uh, Jesus sends them out. But a demon who's mute, you can do that. And so let's look at what happened in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And he healed him so that the mute, mute man spoke and saw, and all the crowds were amazed and were saying, listen to this, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? And that's a messianic term. So now he's delivered this mute demon, and now the question is, can this be the Messiah? This is a messianic miracle, the rabbis say, and now can this be the Messiah? Listen to what the Jewish religious leaders respond. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. In other words, he's using satanic power. This isn't someone of God. So they dismiss it. That's the second messianic miracle. The third messianic miracle was the healing of a man born blind. Because it was believed that if someone went blind, they could still be healed. But someone who was born blind, there was more to it. There was actually a spiritual component that only the Messiah could heal. And so a man born blind can only be healed by the Messiah. Now turn back to the Gospel of John, and let's look at John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or the parents, that he would be born blind? So you could see uh, the, the spiritual component to this. It was believed that this was some sort of family sin that had been passed down. And as a result of that family sin, the man was born blind. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Another proof text of Jesus as the Messiah. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to the man's eyes, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed, and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he sort of looks like him. And he kept saying, It's me. I am the one. 
So they went saying, how, went saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. And so we see Jesus healing the man born blind, giving him sight, and now we have three messianic miracles that take place prior to the time Jesus has his confrontation with the religious leaders on Hanukkah. So back to John 10. Jesus said, my works testify of me, and he's talking about these three messianic miracles that have just taken place. Miracles that the rabbis taught only the Messiah would be able to do. So these religious leaders have a dilemma because he's doing these miracles, pointing them to himself and declaring himself in essence to be the Messiah. Now look at what Jesus says. His response is very, very interesting. He says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Very, very interesting statement. This is the religious leaders the religious elite of Israel, and this itinerant rabbi who's declaring himself to be the Messiah said, you are, are not one of mine. You're not one of my sheep. Can you imagine the anger that they must have had for him? And the hatred? And he elaborates. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. When you read the scriptures, does God speak to you in those scriptures? Do you listen for God's still small voice to encourage you? Perhaps to exhort you to holy living? See, as followers of the Lord, we should be able to hear his voice and follow him. And that's what Jesus is saying. You don't hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And listen to the promise. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Does that encourage you? That somehow your salvation is not dependent upon you doing something. Once you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are saved, you are always saved, because the Father is able to withstand any attack. No one can take them out of my Father's hand. And then Jesus <laughs> makes this statement that actually absolutely drives the religious leaders bonkers. And I'll, I'll say it to you in Hebrew. He says, Ani viavi, I and the Father, Echad Anachnu, we are one. And the Hebrew word there for one, Echad, is the same word that you get in the, in the wonderful prayer in the Old Testament called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word for one there is not the word for a singular one. That's a different Hebrew word. This is a word for a unity of one. And so, 
a family, father, mother, children, all of the same essence with different roles in that one family unit, a unity of one. I and the Father are one. We are one and the same. And maybe you've heard this. I've heard it by a number of people. Jesus never claimed to be God. Anybody ever tell tell you that? Especially if you've ever had visitors from Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus never claimed to be God. His followers erroneously made him that. He's the Son, but he's not God. Jesus clearly is claiming to be God here. We are one, one and the same. We are of the same essence. And the religious leaders knew exactly what he was saying. Look at what their response is. Verse 31, they picked up stones again to stone him. And they had stoned him, tried to stone him earlier. Remember in John 8, he said, Before Abraham was, I am declaring himself to be the I am of the Old Testament. And what was their response? Stones. Why? Because that's the punishment for blasphemy is to be stoned to death. And so they picked up stones. Listen to what they say. He said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And they answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you... Being a man, and Jesus was fully human, make yourself out to be God. He was also fully God. And so, (laughs) as they picked up the stones, in spite of the fact that Jesus was proving to them who he was, they wanted no part of that. And I'm convinced you read later on of the, the high priest Caiaphas, they had an inkling of who he was, but they were unwilling to relinquish their power base in Israel. They didn't want to give it up. And so there was one more messianic miracle that Jesus would do, the greatest of all his miracles in John chapter 11. And that miracle was raising someone from the dead but someone who would would be dead for at least four days. Why is that? Because the ancient rabbis taught that when a person died, the soul and spirit of that person hovered around the body for three days. And in essence, they were revivable. But when the fourth day came, the soul and spirit left, went to be with the Lord, and now that person was dead and unrevivable. Only the Messiah could raise that person from the dead. And that's an important understanding when we come to John chapter 11. So let's look at what was Jesus' greatest earthly miracle. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, You remember them from the book of Luke. Martha was the one who kind of worried about serving the Lord, and Mary was the one who sat at his feet. And I think Martha gets a bad rap, but we'll talk about that in a minute. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So Lazarus was probably the younger brother of these two women. 
and Jesus had a relationship with this family. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So Jesus had an affection for this family, and he had an affection for Lazarus. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So this is the miracle that's going to take place, and he's going to raise him. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So, from the sister's standpoint, Jesus was going around doing these miracles, healing the sick who were strangers. And now they're telling Jesus, this Lazarus, their brother, whom Jesus had a relationship with and apparently had a particular affection for, was sick, and they fully expected Jesus to drop what he was doing and immediately go and heal Lazarus. That was their expectation. And we read this. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So he lingered, and now they were heading to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews, the religious leaders, were just now seeking to stone you. You're going there again? Jesus answered, they're not 12 hours in the day. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Now they get confused. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep, so Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you, you may believe, but let us go to him. <coughs> and Thomas, also called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go so that we may die with him. So they fully expected this to end badly. Now, as they go to Bethany, just to give you a little sense of what's going on, there is a time of mourning taking place. In the Jewish faith, even going back to ancient times, it was a full week of mourning. And the term that was used is that they were being sitting Shiva. It would, they would be receiving people who would be bringing their condolences to the grieving family. And so that's what's taking place. And in this culture, uh, the religious leaders would be there, but also they would hire professional mourners who, when the people, when the family would be mourning, these professional mourners would also be mourning so that there would be a lot of wailing going on in this house. And apparently Lazarus was a pretty young man when he died. That's kind of the background. It says, when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jewish religious leaders had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. 
Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Now, I want you to hear what Martha says to Jesus. Verse 21, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And don't miss that. This is a rebuke. Jesus, when we called for you, he was still living, and if you would have showed up on time, he would still be alive today. Even now, I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now when Jesus said that, it was, there was a belief within uh, biblical Judaism, certainly clearly in the Old Testament, that there was an afterlife. And so she thought he was talking about uh, in the end times. And she said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Incredible verse. And Martha, the one who was sometimes made to feel less spiritual, listen to what she said. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Messiah. So Martha believed that he was the Messiah. Martha was a very spiritually minded person, but also very practical. Churches need Marthas. We don't operate without Marthas, because Marthas are very practical. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, even who comes into this world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, this teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, was still in the place where Martha met him. Listen to this, verse 31. <coughs> then the Jews, the religious leaders who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly, went out and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there, and then the professional weepers could weep along with her. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, fell at his feet, as she always did, and saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Basically the same rebuke. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jewish religious leaders who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we come to verse 35, the verse that everybody who memorizes scriptures memorizes. Anybody want to call it out loud? Jesus wept. We've all memorized that, the shortest verse in the scriptures. Why was he weeping? Was he weeping because Lazarus had died? Well, he knew exactly what he was about to do. What he was weeping, and notice that he was troubled in spirit because this was spiritual warfare. The people around him belonged to Satan. And they were clueless as to what this was about. And it so troubled him in his humanity, he was weeping for them. 
So the religious leaders were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Now we get Martha, real practical again. Martha said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. I like the King James a little better. Anybody remember what the King James said? Lord, he stinketh. The body's decomposing. The Jews do not preserve the body. They just throw it in the grave. And so four days, some decomposition is already taking place, and the body's going to have a really bad odor. You don't want to remove the stone. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And then Jesus prays out loud in front of all the people. There's this big crowd around, and it really is for their benefit. Listen to his prayer. Raising his eyes toward heaven, Jesus said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. So the cave is open, Lazarus is dead for four days, and Jesus yells, the top of his lungs, Lazarus, come forth. Now, in a crowd of that many people, you probably had some people snickering. You probably had some people thinking, this guy's crazy. But all of that stopped when they heard the shuffling of his feet. Because the man who died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings. Picture like one of those old mummy movies. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And so the fourth messianic miracle was raising Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead for four years days. This had to have been the defining moment. Everybody in that community had to look and say, this is the Messiah. Is that what happened? Look at verse 47. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place. Don't miss that. And our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. He did not say this on his own initiative, but be, being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he also might gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Caiaphas understood that. But they were unwilling to relinquish their place, their power, their position. And rather than acknowledge that the Messiah had come, 
their thought was, we've got to get rid of him. We've got to kill him. This can't go on. And so what about Lazarus? Everybody knew that Lazarus had died. He was well known in that community. What about Lazarus? I mean, when you talk about stuff, this is the culmination of his ministry. It doesn't get any better than Lazarus, the miracle of raising Lazarus. So what about him? Well, if you go to chapter 12 and verse 9, The week before Jesus' death, he has a Sabbath meal with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And we read in verse 9, the large crowd of the Jews, the religious leaders, then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they, they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And listen to this. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. Their response to the miracle wasn't to believe. Their response to the miracle was to eliminate the miracle. I mean, Lazarus was a celebrity. Someone who had died and came back. They probably had a lot of questions they wanted to ask him. I mean, Lazarus was on Oprah. He was that famous. Is it the stuff that changes people's hearts? I don't think so. Let me just share this little personal story with you. By now, you should all know that I'm from a Jewish background, born and raised in New York City. And my wife, Julia, born in Italy, is from a Roman Catholic background, and she also grew up in New York City. And she and our two oldest children, in the same week, came to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, were born again. My wife, my daughter who was seven, and my son who was five at the time. They're, they're now grown up with their own families. They had one major dilemma. In that wonderful house where they all came to faith, was living this Jewish financial analyst who wanted no part of Jesus. And so my wife, who I love dearly, is tenacious. She doesn't give up. And my wife began putting little things in my briefcase when I would go to work. A Bible. I never had a Bible. I never paid attention to a Bible other than when I was in Hebrew school as a child. And she gave me a Bible and inscribed it on the front page with Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Also in my briefcase, she would put little Bible tracts from Chosen People Ministries. Is it reasonable to be Jewish and believe in Jesus? A rabbi testifies about Jesus as the Messiah. 
and on and on and on. And I would come home from work and my wife would say, did you read what I put in your briefcase? And I would say to her, honey, I love you, but I'm never going to believe that stuff. Why don't you just leave me alone? And thankfully she never did and never does. <laughs> and so our youngest son, Brian, had a little accident in a park and fell off a slide and broke his arm. And when my wife took him to the uh, emergency room, after they x-rayed his arm, the, the doctor in the emergency room said, has he had lunch? My wife said, why? He said, because we're going to need to do a biopsy. The x-ray showed that there's a tumor on the bone that broke, and it's about the size of a small orange. And uh, it caused the break to happen. The, basically, the tumor was eating away at the bone, and when he fell on his arm, his arm kind of shattered. And so I get that news that, that there's a tumor on my son's arm. Thankfully, the tumor turned out to be benign. But um, the doctor said that in order for him to have normal use of his arm, uh, we're going to have to do some pretty invasive surgery uh, called a bone graft, where they take a piece of bone from his back and graft it onto his arm with the hope that somehow the bone will heal around that and he would have normal use of his arm. At the time, this was my only son, and I was devastated. To the point that I was real angry. Didn't know it at the time, but I was angry at God, not just at my circumstances. Well, long story short, the doctors said that there was a new treatment uh, that had just been uh, published, uh, experimental in nature, actually, where they would inject steroids directly into the bone rather than doing this invasive procedure with the hopes that the steroids injected into the bone would dissolve the tumor. That sounded a lot better to me. And so they had to go through a series of x-rays to watch the bone heal, and certain things needed to take place in order for that to happen. The bone had to start mending on its own. Well, when the last x-ray was to be taken and the doctors were to decide on what uh, treatment would be done, I was going to work that morning. My wife was going to take our son Brian to the doctor. And for the very first time in my life, other than when I was a child in Hebrew school, I prayed to God. And my conversation with God as I was driving to the train station, and no, I didn't close my eyes, was, God, if you are who my wife says you are, if you really are Jesus, then you're going to have to show me. Don't let Brian need the bone graft surgery. Let the doctors decide on this, the other treatment. That would be go a long way in proving to me who you are. Didn't say in Jesus' name, didn't say anything. That was the prayer. Well, my wife called me up after uh, she went to the doctor, and immediately when I answered the phone, I could tell that my wife was crying. And so my heart just sank. I knew it was bad news. I said to her, when does he have to go for the surgery? And my wife said to me, you don't understand. And I said, what do you mean? And she said it again, you don't understand. I said, well, what don't I understand? 
She said, well, when the doctor got the x-ray from the technician, he said to the technician, are you sure this is the right one? I said, well, why would he say that? She said, because the tumor had gone from the size of a small orange to the size of a tiny olive and was basically going away on its own. She said, God has healed our son. And I said to her, you mean Brian's going to have the other treatment? And she says, you're not hearing me. There's no treatment. The tumor is going away. Brian's arm is healed. Now, if you've ever been under conviction of the Holy Spirit, I have to tell you, uh, it, it makes you feel weird. And I got physically ill. First, I got hot from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. Just this hot flesh went over my whole body. And then when that was done, I got real cold from the bottom of my feet up to my head. And I just started crying, uncontrollably weeping. And so you would think after a miracle like that, that I accepted Jesus as my Savior. But that's not what happened. See, I think at that moment I understood intellectually in my head that Jesus was who my wife says he was. And his answer to my prayer, I didn't have the nerve to ask that he heal my son, I just wanted a better option, was, you want me to show you? Try this. But in the middle of all of that, a little voice in my head said, what are you going to tell your parents? Jews don't believe in Jesus. And so I didn't do anything. In spite of the miracle, that's not what convinced me. What ultimately brought me to faith in Jesus was the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart and bringing people and situations into my life that made it impossible for me to resist. And so by the time I accepted Jesus, all the obstacles that I was dealing with, obstacles like that I would stop, no longer be a Jew, I would lose all of my community, lose all of my family, I got to the point where it didn't matter because I knew who Jesus was and I wanted to believe. So when I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, God had prepared me to accept. Did the miracle help? Absolutely. The miracle was a catalyst, among other things. But it didn't bring me to faith. And I think sometimes we erroneously want to see those miracles because we think that's going to bring people to faith. That's going to be the miracle that's going to speak to people. But what I find is the greatest miracle that speaks to people is the miracle of a changed life. And that's what everyone in this room could stand up and testify to, that God changed our lives, that the power of the gospel changed us from the inside out. And Jesus proved himself to those Jewish religious leaders. And when you read the, the account, it said many believed, but most didn't. Because a hard heart, a hard heart can only be changed by the power of God. And that's sometimes what we have to pray for, that God's power would just break through that hard heart in our family member, in our coworker. So I want to encourage you to pray for those in your lives who don't know Jesus 
and uh, to recognize that those miracles proved who he was. But the hard heart of the Jewish religious leaders was so strong that rather than acknowledge who Jesus was, they wanted to eliminate Jesus and even eliminate Lazarus, the greatest miracle of Jesus' earthly ministry. I want to encourage you to be bold witnesses of the gospel. Proclaim the power of God to change lives. That's what the gospel is. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first 